Vita was only there at 30 odd years, you see. Hidcote was different because he started much earlier and it was interrupted by the First War. and welcome to episode 5 from Pot and Cloche Garden Podcasts. I'm Geoff Elphick, a gardener from Gloucestershire in England and I was very pleased to track down John Sales earlier on in the year and talk to him about the early days of the National Trust. This is part 2 of the conversation we had so if you haven't heard part 1 yet pop over to my website joffelphick.co.uk and take a listen there. My guest, John Sales, served as Head of Gardens for the National Trust from 1972 until 1998 and was awarded the Victoria Medal of Honour by the RHS in 1991, its highest honour. He has a passion for snowdrops, having discovered and named several varieties, and in 2018 he released his memoir of his time at the Trust, Shades of Green, My Life as the National Trust Head of Gardens. Before I go any further, let me give a big haughty thank you to the fantastic sponsors of Pot and Cross Garden Podcasts, My Window Box, who you can find at mywindowbox.com. They have beautiful period style and modern window boxes in cast aluminium or steel with drop-in or freestanding troughs to match. Take a visit to their website at mywindowbox.com and bring the garden to your window. And a big thank you to the My Window Box team for looking after us. As usual, there is our product review where I talk to my old gardening chum, Jeff Carr. Jeff previously worked for the BBC when Gardener's World was located at Berryfields, back in the days of Alice Fowler. Jeff now designs gardens in the Cotswolds and surrounding counties, and this time he chooses a common product and explains his uses for it. So, um, on with the show. In this episode, part two of our conversation, I start by asking John what it was like in the Trust in those early days, working with Graham Stewart-Thomas, staffing levels and the number of gardens they had to work with. Graham advised at no less than 80 gardens 80, 80 was it? Yes. Yeah, at gardens. But he got round very quickly. Uh, and uh, I've mentioned already, he was, he was a, f- a quick worker and he wrote very precisely. He would deal sort of with all those gardens, but um, he would only give half a day to a garden which nowadays would, you know, you'd have to spend a, a, a day on it at least. But he would spend he would go to places like Hidcote, for example, four or five times a year because he would. Uh, there was a lot of work to do at Hidcote at that time um, and he was putting it sort of right. Uh, so uh, the point was that uh, I went with, to him uh, and joined him and uh, we used to go... We started off by just doing the tour. In fact, I went the first three months... Uh, because he was hibernating, just going around on my own, looking at places, and meeting gardeners and talking to them and trying to be helpful. And because I was very much the young guy, you know, and, <laughs> uh, these were well-established head gardeners. Some of them, you know, oh, you know, looking at me sideways. Who is this young whippersnapper? You know, and, uh, and uh, so you've got to live through that. It's much the same as 
being tested by the students, but it's from a different direction. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Looking down on you, the students are looking sideways at you. <laughs> and, uh, and so I got to know quite a lot of head gardeners. Then went round with Graham and found people say, well, didn't the head gardeners dislike the gardens advisors coming? And, you know, they actually very much looked forward to Graham Tobbs. That's the thing that surprised me most. They very much look forward to Graham Thomas's visits. And he used to say to them, save all your complaints until I come, and then we'll, dish, we'll sort them out, you see. And so he wouldn't talk to them on the phone or anything like that. Well, he'd be polite, but that was all. Um, and he had established this system where whoever was managing the garden, which varied, sometimes it was the former owner managing the garden, which was the trickiest, uh, situation. Sometimes it was the land agent. Sometimes it was some. Uh, it, it's finding basically finding the power base in, as you probably know, wherever it may be. You don't know yes. where it is until yes. it might be nominally him, but it's not. It's her. As a rule, you know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so you have to. And in those days, there were a lot more gardens of the trust run by the donors of the property or the family of the donors and so you had a lot of uh, dealing getting to know them and uh, uh, having to you don't win them all but you uh, you only half win quite a lot of them um, but you uh, you had to work on it like that so I learned a lot about the peoples not so much the plant but I suppose quite a lot about plants because Graham was a great plantsman and he would test you the whole time just everybody. His sort of visit would be to ask questions of the head gardener. What are you trying to do? What are we doing? Where are we going? What that kind of thing. All those these things. And what sort of then we'd say if it comes to something important like tree planting or something. We'd, firstly, we'd say, well, we need a tree here. What does it need to be? This is a garden. This is so and so garden. Is it eighteenth century garden tree or is it a nineteenth century tree? And is it evergreen or is it deciduous or is it uh, conifer? And is it going to be flowering? Or how big is it going to be? Then we go through all that. Then you say, what do you suggest then? <laughs> and he said to the gardeners and me <laughs> before he know, gave his opinion. I, yes. I learned. I learned that I'm frantically, <laughs> frantically thinking up these days. And then he'd shoot them down one after another. You see, <laughs> that was his style. It was a wonderful learning experience, I might say. Yes, it must have been. Gosh, it was hard work. You didn't have to waste a moment. You couldn't be dithering or looking around or anything like that. You, you had to be listening. And he was what I would call picturesque in his attitude. He was always looking at views and uh, and. Uh, 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 when it came particularly to parks or even gardens, he'd say, come over here, look from here, he would say, as if, you know, every visitor would have to go and look for a certain <laughs> place. And uh, uh, it, it's always a series of views, in his opinion, that the gardens were. There weren't experiences, and yet he was, he was very... Uh, uh, he, he was very susceptible to uh, atmosphere. Brilliant about about fragrance absolutely brilliant about that uh, i learned you know in describing of, fragrances yes, you mean yes I mean, and, and noticing them yes you know, and he would say oh, what 
what can I smell? What can you smell? <laughs> yeah. And then you say, uh, and, and things like uh, all sorts of plants you would call, smell that. Uh, what does it smell? I'm not quite sure it smells fruity. It's plum pudding. It's a plum pudding. <laughs> now, as soon as he said it, you say, well, yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> yeah, that sort of thing, you know. And he always had an answer to these things. So he thought it through always. He was always one step ahead uh, of you, with, particularly with plants. But he ignored management, anything to do with management, anything to do with machinery, anything to do with herbicides or insecticides or anything of that sort. It wasn't his business. You could get that by ringing up the RHS at Wisley. Right? Yes, <laughs> yeah, quite. <laughs> we'll get that from me. <laughs> so, you see, cut out a whole lot of uh, of the the work of a gardens advisor, really, which I took on over the years, and which, you know, was was became things like staffing and, uh, you know, he wouldn't interview people. Well, on a similar theme, I know over the short period of time I was at the Trust, I was there literally yeah. for a few months um, when Mike Carnan was there. Well, yeah. he's still there now. Yeah. Um, the words I kept hearing at coffee time was policy, policy, policy yeah. for this, policy yeah. for that. Yeah. Did you work on policies for this and that in those days or no. was it more, you know, down to earth, practicalities? No. No, I mean, you've got to realise the time this was. This is the, this is the early 70s. And quite honestly, garden history, although it existed, obviously, it didn't exist in print much at all. It didn't exist in universities or colleges. Um, it was a product of uh, people's reading and, you know, what they found out when they got to a place. And Graham very much operated in a, a practical sense, uh, he, a common sense way. He didn't talk, to, he was keeping the ship afloat. I and mean, that's just about, you know, with the staffing, you, having to deal with 80 gardens, what do you do, you know? You try to keep the ship on the, uh, on the sea, uh, you keep it going, and what you do, you have to make sure that things get better rather than worse. So he would pick up the traditions of the place, which is a terribly important element, which they, if I may say so, is not always the case nowadays, but uh, pick up the traditions of the place from the people and from what he read about it, learnt about it, and he would carry that on the, the next, what he thought was the next logical way of dealing with yes. it, you know, the next logical conclusion. So um, uh, he didn't fuss too much about policy. He would say, he would say to me, what we need is a different thought for this place, which I think is more or less what he was saying. We need a different thought for this place when we went there. Uh, and, the, and uh, you know, if it's Victorian, it would be different. But he yes. wouldn't talk in, in terms that English heritage talk of now. It wouldn't be written down and put on the website tomorrow. No, it wouldn't no. have all these fancy <laughs> term, terminology, which, um, and of course, English heritage didn't exist. It didn't exist until mm. uh, 1983. Really, that late? Yeah, yes, yeah. You see, and so we were operating without English heritage. We were operating in our own world, and we actually started. Uh, well, 
grounded. <laughs> See, you couldn't be bothered with that sort of thing. But once I got into the trust, uh, we the Garden History Society existed. Um, 1965, and I joined it, um, so I knew that it existed. And at Westbury Cause, the very first restoration, you know, uh, of the, the total restoration, uh, using what they call historicist restoration, as distinct from just a uh, fly by your pants sort of thing uh, people have been going in the past Victorians talked about restoring things but what they were doing was they were putting a, a bit of their idea of what you know uh, medieval gardening looked like which it, well, it may have been alright but I mean uh, but it was Victorian gardening basically uh, but working from evidence is the point and that is the difference between and this was born with the Garden History Society uh, really um, although people had thought about it before I um, mean it was born with the Garden History Society properly and the first major restoration that the Garden History Society got involved in was Westbury Court and they were the mainspring of that um, uh, thanks to some work that was done by a student at, at Gloscat, actually, what is now Gloscat used to be then. That's uh, Gloucester Colleges of Art and Technology, yes, I think, right. isn't it? It, name, used yes. to be, it used to be Cheltenham College yes. of, of Art or whatever it was. And she did this thing on, you know, this... Uh, and she'd, she discovered uh, the, uh, the account book for... 17, no, 1640s, 50s, 60s, onwards, right through to the, the beginning of the 18th century, for West, all this stuff on Westbury Court, which is uh, absolutely marvellous stuff. And she'd, uh, you know, done a thesis on it. And it just so happened that Westbury Court was derelict then, and they couldn't build on it they wanted to build on it extend the town over it and uh, but it had this one building uh, you know there was no no historic no protection for historic gardens in those days yeah. not, there's not that much now but there is some but uh, but this was a listed building the pavilion at Westbury Court and uh, they was, the result of that was they were stopped from developing it and the uh, developer hadn't bought it at that stage but he wanted to and he did get planning consent for for his uh, and they didn't know what to do with it uh, and uh, they gave it to the trust and <laughs> just you know, those days accepted things thank god and uh Nowadays, I, just, I can't imagine the trust accepting a, a, a sort of uh, smoking time bomb like that one, you know, <laughs> costing them eventually. <laughs> they always look at the money these days. Yes. But, um, uh, and, but they were persuaded to take it on, which is, uh, and it was pioneering stuff, you know, really. We were pioneering uh, and did a lot of things wrong. You know, did a lot right, <laughs> quite a lot right, yeah. And it, it actually sparked a lot of interest in, in garden history, that garden alone, yes. Um, and uh, 
But of course, it's uh, it's never going to be a honeypot for visitors, and therefore the trust doesn't give it any money, and uh, therefore that's the way it goes. And uh, it's still good. It's still good, but it could be a lot better. Well, things have changed a lot um, from from your early days, I should think, um, in terms of people visiting gardens, you know, garden visits, uh, etc. Now that that sort of thing has its toll on gardens doesn't it you oh, know absolutely. in terms of yes. wear and tear etc you have to think yes. of you have to think of tea rooms cafes oh, yes, uh, ways yes. of keeping the visitor happy yes. um now that has been a particular problem i think the one i've heard about in sissinghurst which yes. was you know yes. originally designed for a few parties maybe yes. Yes. Uh, but now i don't know how many yes. tens of hundreds of thousands it gets yes. each year and i think when Vita Sackville West was there, it was very much sort of a, a seasonal garden, wasn't it? You know, you'd have yes, certain was, areas you'd yeah. visit, visit throughout the world. You, you, she was still alive when you. Oh yes, were, yes. In I went charge there of that when one. She was, yes, um, I, went, I took the students there as when I was from oh, Bristol. Right. Yes, and uh, uh, and she was working in the garden at the time, um, and uh, and of course I knew uh, that she uh, she it had gone to the trust uh, before I joined the trust, obviously. Um, and uh, that Pam and Sybil were there, um, and um, but we went when she was uh, when Pam and Sybil had been appointed, but before uh, she died. So it was a quite a crucial time that was, and it was very interesting to see the garden at stage. It was uh, inspirational garden, but but the details of it. I mean, if you looked at it now critically, you'd say, "Oh, cracky, you're oh, a mess over there." Look, don't. But you see, the attitude they had in those days. Well, that, if if that bit's not nice, we'll go somewhere else. Yes. And and that's a very that is a way you could do it in your own garden, don't you? You, know, you don't expect every bit to look absolutely wonderful. Uh, but uh, amazingly, the, uh, Pam and Sybil. Uh, was so brilliant and the best gardeners of the 20th century really uh, in that in that sense and they turned it into something which uh, was inspired by um, by uh, by uh, Vita and of course the structure was there but um, it, it wasn't the same garden that I mean the structure of it, and they put the structure right. To, the trust put the structure right to a large degree. We replanted the pergola, we re, we rebuilt all the fallen down walls, and you know all that kind of stuff. It was a terrific leader in what I call the renaissance of of gardening in the the post war period. This is from about uh, you know the mid fifties, I'd say onwards wasn't it um and people were starting to visit gardens and they talked about and Sissinghurst was the leading light at that time undoubtedly and it was for a long time and still is to a last degree but it's a certain sort of gardening uh it definitely led the way in in many many ways uh and had a huge impact on on gardens it was quite uh, sorry to butt in. It was yeah. quite interesting because I was talking to um, mm. Stephen Anderton about Hidcutt. Yes, and <laughs> it was interesting how Vita Sackville West was asked to write the first 
yeah. guide to Hidka. Yeah, right. yeah. And I was quite interesting to see how maybe that had influence, influenced her definitely, yeah. uh, design yeah. or her layout yes, at, at yeah. Sissinghurst. Yes, and I think it was quite did. obvious it was, and it did. Yes. But it was, a, it was a, it was a, st- yes, she, she picked up the style. Mind you, it fitted the site yes. and everything like that. And it was, uh, it fitted the period and uh, uh, that sort of thing. But, but basically, you, uh, Lawrence Johnson was a you know a wonderful man um, and very good with structure of the garden. Surprisingly good with structure. He's very interested in architecture, you know, and therefore he got the he got the structure right. He started from the arts and crafts attitude, but the garden people say it's an arts and crafts garden. It's rubbish. It's not an arts and crafts garden any more than than um, Sissinghurst is. It, uh, it's, pa- it's past, uh, you know, beyond all that, uh, uh, all that nookiness of the, <laughs> that you used to get in, you know, uh, all those uh, uh, peacocks and stuff. They were there in the garden uh, because that's the way he started in the old garden, but he moved on, as a lot of people do. They, uh, and, and it's very important to understand that in gardens is... Historically, you often see places like Hidcote, Sissinghurst, you see the progression of the people's, the, the person who owned it, who made it, it's progression of their interest and knowledge as time goes on, their attitude and their taste, how that changes over the period of their lifetime. And, uh, you know, it might be for 30 years. They, she, uh, Vita was only there at 30 Odd years, you see. Um, Hidcote was different because he started much earlier and it was interrupted by the First War. And uh, and so you saw the development at Hidcote much more. The old garden is very arts and crafts and nooky and, you know, uh, 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 topiary things and stuff. The early bits were, but he expanded and it became much grander uh, after that time, um, yes. and then uh, Nora Lindsay came along, of course, after that, who was the uh, plant person. So, you've got to realise that at Headcote, the, the the money bag, the money was controlled by his mother. Yes, so I gather. Yeah, yes. and he used to do what he could to get the money out of her, uh, reading between the lines, and um, he was a spender. She was a saver, and she used to collect husbands. And uh, one after another, they they died and left a lot. Of, no, I'm exaggerating, but yes. you know what I mean. She finished up with a lot of money because uh, she was left it. And um, ultimately, um, uh, she died in I can't remember quite when, but the the end of the twenties. Mm-hmm. I think around about 1929 or 30 or something. He needed. He, he was not married and he needed somebody to tell him what to do because he'd got used to do that all his life um, and um, uh, this is only my view uh, this is my, my uh, sort of amateur uh, psychology but I mean I, I believe he just uh, um, he wanted to be taken over by somebody and it definitely was uh, Nora Lindsay who was extremely talented uh, in flower gardening, she didn't know anything about structure. 
she was she was a brilliant flower gardener. So she came along, coinciding with him, suddenly having access to the money yeah, as well. Absolutely, and yes. he, of course he went to he bought. Was it France or Italy? I've forgotten. Yeah, yes. uh, yeah, South France. Yes, yeah. um, and uh, uh, and he started spending money in a big way. And she used to go and stay there, as she did with quite a lot of places, Nether Lippiot, for example. She used to she had a lot of influence there. Uh, and uh, stayed there, and Hidcote, she used to stay there for, I mean, when she stayed, it was sort of weeks, even months sometimes on end, that she used to work in the garden, and she didn't used to draw plans, you see, that, but she used to sort gardens out, uh, and suggest lots of new plants, and place them in the garden, and I'm sure she did that, I mean, I believe that uh, quite a lot of the colour scheming at Heathcote was Nora Lindsay. Yes. Uh, because it's her style and uh, the way she used colour, used planting, uh, she used to work tone on tone and all that sort of thing. <laughs> and, you know, it's that. I don't know what sort of person she was, but uh, she used to get on with people. She said, what do you say about her daughter? who got on with nobody <laughs> except herself. <laughs> <laughs> now, we, yeah. th- those two gardens again, Sissinghurst yeah, and Hidcote, they're on the sort of Japanese tourist trail, they're on everybody's tra- trail. I mentioned earlier yeah, sort of the, the amount of people that are walking through these gardens now. Yes. What, and it's a particular problem in Sissinghurst, I know, that they're trying to address. Yeah, what what, what do you think problem. can be done? It's worse at, at Hidcote. Is it? I, I mean, they're, they're having time slots, aren't they? I mean, you well, they t- did go into that. Yes. Um, but um, they don't seem to do it now. They seem to, they seem to get away with it. Um, but it is a problem with, uh, with guards. And I, I think the trust... I shouldn't be too critical, because it's an old, an old fogey moaning, but... Um, Honestly, the attitude to a place like Heathcote, the whole of the trust thinks mainly about uh, getting more people into properties. And uh, this works reasonably well in a lot of properties and uh, what they call, uh, you know, kind of entertaining them in a way. Um, um, But I believe that the trust ought to be much more selective about the way it deals with properties. I mean, I went to Heathcote and they said to me... uh, our aim, our objective, is to have 200,000 visitors. I said, why? You've got plenty of money. They've got, I mean, there's no shortage of money there. There's no shortage of money in the trust. Was it left as an endowment or...? No, no. Uh, somebody, um, I mean, it brings the money in. There's no big house. There's no expensive. Yes. It's not an expensive place to run. Uh, the trust owns the village. The house um, is leased separately, is it, or something? No, or? it used to be, but it isn't now. They, they, it's uh, part of the visit. Uh. Um, and uh, but it isn't big and it isn't expensive. Uh, I see what you mean. And yes, it, yeah. Money rolls in, and somebody came along and uh, gave the trust. I think it's a million pounds or something. If they could match the funding from their own sources as well, um, or maybe in half a million. I, I don't mean it's a large amount of money. And so they were able to put a lot of the, uh, the artefacts back, a lot of the buildings were restored, which is brilliant, you know, and that's after my time. Uh, but um, I believe that honeypots like that, uh, they've got to find some way of um, protecting them from just visitor damage, as it were. And so 
I mean, all this nonsense, I mean, I mean, I'm not against Easter egg hunts and stuff like that, but for God's sake, you know, do you have an a Easter egg hunt at, at Hidcote? In a way, uh, I mean, to be a really nasty old devil, you know, what uh, do children get out of Hidcote? Why are they there? You, know, you, I mean, you could take the view that, yeah, they need to be taught horticulture and to understand gardens. But, you know, Hidcote is a, a, a honeypot. I mean, a really top thing. It's the, one of the best. And Sissyker, similarly. You know, you, you've actually got to be much more selective about this and uh, uh, protect them from... And I don't ask me how to do it, but uh, <laughs> but the trust is its own worst enemy. It's, are they open seven days a week? These guys, yeah, they are now. Yeah, that's the point. You see, it used to be six days in my time, or even five days in Graham's time, uh, and the pressures were much less in those days. And you know, you see, go there and you see kids jumping over the the uh, hedges and. Uh, uh, you know that's right. I mean, lovely for them, but it, they could jump over hedges somewhere else. Yes, it takes its toll, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. But you know, it, uh, when you're dealing with places that are uh, their character, their their significance is about excellence, excellence in every sense. Then you have to accept that as part of the constraint of managing the place and manage it for that standard of excellence not in some way you know open to the kid open to everybody you know anytime anywhere you know, breeze in you know and if you lie on the uh, on the hedge or push your way through a, a, a shrubbery you know it, it's not on. Do you think this has all come about in recent years because of the change of, well, it seems to me there's a change of management, if you like, at the Trust. They have property managers now, I think, don't they? Who... Yeah, um, yes. I think what's happened is that the Trust has changed its character totally. It is now all managed. Uh, and when you say this, it's all the right thing to do is to push the responsibility down to the bottom uh, the people on the ground who are actually managing it make them answer the questions uh, and that is all good you know that's all good provided the people on the ground if it's a property manager or a local manager they don't know anything about anything uh, I mean <laughs> they do of course but I mean the point is they don't know anything in, they're not experts on everything to do with the property they couldn't be and they sh wouldn't be they're managers and if you tell a manager, uh, if you give a manager a certain uh, objectives, that he will pursue them and he, he will get paid accordingly uh, because he's met his objectives for that year. If all those objectives are financial or visitor-oriented, then the conservation side is... Uh, neglected or is not talked about because objectives when in management terms are smart you know whatever that means uh, uh, significant uh, uh, manageable you no know, measurable you know all those kind of things that they talk about these days but it's ever so difficult 
to measure, uh, give an objective, which is talks about the quality of that border over there uh, compared with us. Is it getting better or is it getting worse? And it, and there aren't. And uh, who who decides that? You know, it's only a person who really knows. And uh, in in my day with the trust, I used to listen to the guards' advisers, and I would say, "Look, this is what are you trying to do here? This is rubbish. You know, really, it's going backwards. You know, get your act together. You know, uh, <laughs> let's have a talk about it. You know, where are we going? Uh, but who does that now? Because the guards' advisers have been, in a sense, demoted from their the role uh, they're, they're listened to in, in Graham Thomas's time. You, you know, if, Graham, if you didn't do what Graham Thomas said, he wouldn't come back. <laughs> <laughs> but I understand now if you want to call in the garden advisor, you have to pay for it, don't you? Well, I'm not sure Is whether that that's the working? case now, no. ah. um, but it certainly went through a period of yes. doing that. And the attitude is still the same mm. we'll take it or leave it. We do and Garn's advice in my time, and uh, and Graham started, it's nothing to do with me, but um, was end on, and that's essential, that it's a, it's a process. And I've always said that about gardens are not objects, they're processes, and they're going to be changing all the time. And it's nothing to do with, uh, it's obviously to do with visitors and everything like that, but it's, uh, it's to do with... Um, growth and development and change and things like accidents and uh, you know all the elms die or something like that all the box hedges die you know all these things have got to be reacted to so change is change is part of the game but you've got to trace that change all the time and keep in your mind what is excellence what is <laughs> right for this place which is very very difficult to explain and to f to follow, yes. And one person's views and is not the same as the next. And when it comes to objectives for the place, it's so much easier to say, well, the number of children going through the door, the number of uh, or the number of new members we make at the gate, and the number. Of, but who does the other bit? And what the trust has done is it's removed all its checks and balances. The managers have got it for themselves to themselves uh, between them. Yes, there are curators and there are guards advisors, but they've only just reinstated the guards advisors, who I don't know. I'm not quite sure how they work, but um, they obviously don't get listened to to the same degree that they, they used to. Um, and uh, and it's the same in the houses, but uh, and if you say well. Uh, what about conservation? I said, it's the it's the answer you always get from government, which is, oh, we we've spent more money this year on conservation than we ever have in the past. Now, don't you get that from every minister yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when they're talking about mental health, or and yet mental Anything, health yeah. care goes down and down and down. Uh, despite that, well, you know perfectly well they're going to spend more than they've ever spent because. Prices go up for yes. anything, and they've got more properties. <laughs> so you know, it's all it's all uh, PR, really. Yes, um, yeah. Um, now we've only mentioned two gardens. You've got 
40, oh, yeah. 48 other gardens in your book, is that right? Your 50 gardens you talked about? Yes. In the book. I so, could have written on. Uh, well, I mean, there's something more like 160 now or something like that sort. Those kind that, of numbers, yes. including the parks. And parks are, of course, another big element of the trust. Yes. Uh, Let's uh, talk about your book. Yeah. Uh, What's, what's it called? 50. It's called F- Shades of Grey. Shades of Grey. Shades, sorry, Not 50. Shades of Green. Shades of Green. People are getting very confused now. Yeah, yes. it's 50, it is 50 gardens. Yes. Uh, Coming to the end, I've got some really detailed questions to ask you. I'm trying to think of some questions that won't be in your book, you uh, see. Right. And um, so in the early days of the trust, when you were with Graham Stuart Thomas, those few years uh, before you took over, how did you get around the country? Were you going by bus? Did you have a, were you a no. fine rover? Did Graham Stuart Thomas have a Rolls Royce he'd turn up in? No, no, Graham <laughs> used to have a very humble car which he used to drive around. Uh, he, uh, he used to drive a, uh, a, a little sort of hatchback thing um, which looked to me like always like a hearse. And I, <laughs> I said to him one day, <laughs> what do you do with this at the weekends? <laughs> yes. He had a good sense of humour, I would yes. say that about him. But, uh, uh, no, I had a very humble car and yes. uh, we used to get paid mileage. And, yes. Yeah. And, uh, and in those days, they, uh, they gave you a mileage, al- mileage allowance, which was pretty mean, but they were less, they were less fussed about where you stayed Latterly, I got to know all the head, the, the 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 agents who were, of course, the power base of the trust in those days, and the land agents, and uh, I used to stay with them quite a lot, and that's very useful because you can get, you can hear what's going on yes. in the region then, yes. you know what what's happening, um, but uh, uh, so, but then we used to stay in Graham was just stay in hotels. Because he didn't want to have to socialise in the evening. Oh, I see, yes. Unless he needed to. Yes. And he, sometimes he needed to, and he would do it for that. Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. But he, because he would... And he would only have to stay in a hotel that had a good lounge, uh, where it was quiet, and where he could write his notes out. Oh, I see, yes. Yeah. So he was, you know, he was very picky yes. about everything. He used to say to me, I'm very particular, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you've sort of covered what my next question was. You're yeah. out on the road. Yeah. Um, we probably didn't have uh, motorway services in those days. Yeah. What would you do? Did you take a, an egg sandwich with you or did yeah. you stop off at a... a... Yeah, well, we just stopped at a pub usually. Yes. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. Yes. No, w- what, what we did was because we had to get around a lot... I mean, I used to, used to have to advise on a lot of gardens. I mean, uh, I... I advise on about 40 gardens regularly, um, 35 or 40, um, and uh, that was sort of once or twice a year, but also had to go and visit the other ones when there was a crisis or was some policy decision or some, something had happened. And so, and, and head office, of course, I used to go to committees sometimes, uh, if, I, if I had to. And uh, so it it was a lot of travelling, and I therefore decided the only way is to get uh, uh, is to organise it in advance. And I used to say to the, the guards advisors in the office, "We have a big meeting at the <laughs> Look, we've got to get it sorted out for the year. 
So if we possibly can, you can't get it precise, but you can set, set aside weeks when you, particularly if you're in Northern Ireland or uh, in Cornwall or Northumberland, you know, you've got to get there. You don't want to have to keep travelling. So we'd go up for the week, uh, Monday to Friday, and then spend the week there and then come. And so that... Uh, uh, so we would make the best use of our time, at least amount of time travelling within the place. Yes. Uh, and we'd often travel with the land agents or whatever it was, so you'd get a lot of information from that. Uh, and sometimes, occasionally, stay with um, uh, with donors, even. Yeah, Graham used to. Um, he used to... <laughs> Uh, used to stay at Night's Hayes. We used to love it. He used to love staying at Night's Hayes because it was a wonderful garden. And uh, <laughs> and it was before the trust actually accepted it. It did take it on, but it took it on on the understanding that the fact that that uh, the Amorys, the uh, the Heathcote Amorys, would continue living there and running the gardens. You know, and and, um, uh, and Michael. Um, was there as well um, but um, uh, and he used to they used to live in a rather splendid way and he used to he used to love going there because his little car would turn up you know uh, been through mud or something on the way there and, and he would get out of it and they would pick up his case and take it in and he'd take his car you know his little car away and we, uh, when he came back it was all beautifully sort of manicured and cleaned and uh, you know uh, and the chauffeur would put it outside the door <laughs> to wait for him to go you know <laughs> <laughs> so he used to love all that. Yes. He used to stay there. Uh, and it, uh, in the days when the guy, when the house, before the house was put back to Victorian. You know. Yes. Well, John, thank you for your time. It's been brilliant. <laughs> um, uh, oh, I chat too much. Well, we could go on, couldn't we? Yes. Yeah, uh, could, as I yeah. say, we've only covered two gardens, really. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, that's fantastic. So we look forward to the book coming out. Can't wait yeah, for that. Yeah, right. I wish you luck with that. I hope it shoots to the top of yeah. the charts. <laughs> good luck with your garden. Yeah. Your amazing garden that I walked through when I got here. And uh, good luck with the snowdrops. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah. And speak again soon. Thank you. Yeah. As usual, a great discussion full of fascinating facts and detail. Next, it's project review time. I tracked Jeff down somewhere in the garden. I'm back in the garden for a product review and I'm trying to find Jeff Carr, my mate, who'll uh, talk about... Uh, oh, he's over there. He's in the veg garden. Morning, Jeff. Morning, Jeff. We're in the veg garden, as you say. Yeah. And... This is a product that a lot of your listeners will be very familiar with. Uh, it's on the ground, flat, and it's the material-based product. And most of your listeners will know it for its uses for either protecting plants from frost or for warming up the soil earlier in the year, uh, which is probably another subject for another podcast some other time certainly is you know my feelings about that (laughs) yes indeed um so tell us what is it it's called fleece the 
usual use for it, as I say, is to protect plants from frost or to try and warm the soil up early spring. I'm using it for a completely different purpose and uh, I doubt I'm the first person to come up with this, but it, it works. I'm going to lift up the fleece so Joff can see what's underneath and perhaps he might like to describe what he sees. Yeah, now Jeff has got it pinned flat to the ground. It's not, it's not supported by any uh, cloche sort of framework or anything like that. He's lifting it up and underneath there appears to be ooh, shallots or onion onions. sets. Onion onions sets, sets yeah. put in there. And I've got the fleece over the onion sets, not to keep the frost off. Mm-hmm because that is what you want at all. Mm -hmm. They actually like a period of cold. And it's also not there to warm the soil up. I've put it there because I get absolutely fed up with the birds (laughs) pulling the onion sets out of the ground. You come to the veg garden every morning, think, have those onion sets taken yet? And you look, and they're scattered all over the bed. The rooks have worked their way along the road. Yeah, and I used to think that uh, it was um, mice, or occasionally when you would find an onion set that was just sitting on the surface, maybe it was frost heave that had lifted it out. But I thought maybe it's the birds, so I'm going to try covering it with this fleece. And bingo, not one single onion set has been moved since I put the fleece over. Interesting. Do you remove it at any point once perhaps they've got the roots down? Or- yeah, yeah, once they've become really well established, yeah. uh, which at the moment they're close to doing, uh, the fleece is slightly inhibiting their growth now, but I'm going to leave them until all of the um, stalks of the onions are about 10 centimetres long. Yeah. Then I'm going to take the fleece off because by then I think they'll be established enough to withstand bird attack. Yes, yeah. Now, that, 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 that's interesting you're using it for that. Now, just out of interest, other ways around that problem I've found in the past, um, I've often grown onion sets in little cells, so they already, and you grow them on for a month, and they, they've got roots, and then you can plant them um, almost, you know, as a little potted plant, and that way I find that they, they hold their, stand their ground well, you know, against being removed. Um, the other thing I, I like often doing is um, actually growing onions or shallots from seed. Um, a, you get a lot more choice. Um, they'll germinate any time of the year. I mean, middle of December, they just, uh, in a greenhouse, they'll, they'll seem to germinate. Um, and yes, you get quite a, a choice of varieties then, particularly if you want to grow shallots, something like... Um, Quiste de poulet, I think it was called. What's that? Chicken thigh, I think. Um, they are they are lovely little uh, uh, shallots we used to grow. Um, or, or the there's the um, the is it French or Spanish onion? Um, Chipo- oh, Italian, in fact, chipola boritana, a little flat onion that you pay about six quid for a little bottle of them in balsamic vinegar in, in Waitrose. Um, you can grow those from seed. Um, I'm digressing i know but uh, again if you're growing them in cells that's one way around getting around this problem of them being pulled up although i think if you spent that sort of trouble in growing a specific variety i think i'd still be tempted to do what you've just mm-hmm. done and give them a bit of protection yeah. until they've really got their feet down well i agree with you about the pros and cons of either using seed or sets because there doesn't seem to be any real advantage of one over the other mm. um like you say seeds take really well um onion sets i suppose slightly more convenient yeah i don't know um but i've tried both in the past um growing uh, seed down on the allotment works really well um but you know it's horses for courses isn't yeah it? um just while we're on the subject of the fleece another interesting um fact i 
heard but I've never tried um I was at the farmer's market several years ago and they were selling carrots and I said to the chap how do you grow your carrots um and basically he sows them late on in the year so October um which none of us would dare try this is on a field scale he grows he sows them and he then fleeces them and he gets them through the winter I mean this is in uh, sort of the Gloucestershire Hereford border and um, and he, he grows a superb crop I mean he's got quite nice soil where he is but it was interesting the sort of protection that a thin piece of fleece can give um, I was asking so many questions he was a bit suspicious in the end he thought I was in the business trying to steal <laughs> you, his ideas you thought you, he was going to be fleeced by you yeah exactly boom boom um, <laughs> but uh, no Jeff brilliant thanks very much really interesting um, so that's my mate Jeff Carr Jeffrey Carr .co.uk and um, I hope you'll have another interesting product for us next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you Jeff. As always an insightful discussion of a product that can improve all our gardening lives. Thank you all for listening. I've got some great guests lined up for the next few episodes, so if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, do so. It won't cost you anything, and you can do that via Apple Podcasts or your favourite app, or you can go to my website, joffelfic.co.uk. Of course, another lovely big thank you to our sponsors, mywindowbox.com. Please do check them out. In the meantime, may your secateurs be very well honed and your box be free of blight. And I suppose I ought to mention Cydolima perspectalis, the box moth. I'll see you next time. <laughs>